Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O God of all spirits and of all flesh, who have destroyed death and overcome the devil and given life to the world, grant, O Lord, to the soul of your servant, Brendan, who has departed from this life, that he may rest in a place of light, in a place of happiness, in a place of peace, where there is no pain, no grief, no sighing. And since you are a gracious God and the lover of mankind, forgive him every sin he has committed by thought or word or deed. For there is not a man who lives and does not sin. You alone are without sin. Your righteousness is everlasting and your word is true. You are the resurrection and the life, the repose of your departed servant, Brendan, O Christ God. And we give glory to you together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving spirit both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is my pleasure to welcome our speaker this evening. Our speaker is the president of Catholic Answers. He writes and lectures on the lives of Catholic heroes and villains, and has addressed audiences across the United States and in Europe. Christopher Check served for seven years as a field artillery officer in the Marine Corps after which he served for 19 years as the vice president of the Rockford Institute. In 2012, he joined Catholic Answers as director of development and was named president in 2015. Um, and it is my pleasure to welcome this evening, Mr. Christopher Check. Uh, my goodness, I'm, I'm honored to speak. And uh, of course, it's bittersweet to be talking about any moment in history um, with the recent news of, of, of Brendan's passing. Boy, what a first-rate scholar and a real Christian gentleman and a, a man I am proud to say that I have stolen liberally from in preparing uh, lectures uh, throughout my own, uh, my own time speaking. So here's, this is for you, uh, Dr. McGuire. Um, we're going to talk tonight about Christopher Columbus. We're not going to have a narrative of the four voyages uh, that can get us bogged down a little bit. Um, and that's not really what I want to talk about so much as what the Christopher Columbus story means. And I, I hope that by the end of that, uh, by the end of this talk, then you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. I encourage everybody to be familiar with the Christopher Columbus story. And there's actually been some really first-rate stuff written. Um, you know, Admiral of the Ocean Sea, uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison's, uh, it comes in two volumes. This man was a great sailor. He also wrote the Oxford uh, History of the American Peoples, which is quite good too. Um, but he, but he, he, is, he was a naval officer and he sailed most of Columbus's routes. And I think that subsequent historians have corrected some of the math, but nonetheless, 
absolutely first-rate book written from the perspective of a, of a, a first-rate sailor himself. And that's, of course, what Columbus was. But if you don't want to go into the fullness of that, he also wrote a shorter version uh, called Mariner. And I recommend that. And, you know, for, for teenage boys and girls as well. Or another one that's an excellent summary um, is Ernley Bradford. Some of you will have read his uh, book on the Siege of Malta, by the way, another sailor. Uh, and I, I, I recommend for great narrative style to get the general story of Christopher Columbus. And then um, tomorrow I'll be on a panel with Robert Royal with uh, Thomas More College of Liberal Arts. Um, Bob Royal recently brought back into print. Originally, it was called 1492 and all that. Now Columbus and the Crisis of the West. And Sophia Institute Press has brought that back. And this this really is an if you're just going to read one thing where you're looking for the the um, you know how to answer the political manipulations of history, uh, Bob Royal has done a superb job with that. And then this actually is complete junk, but it's an example of the stuff that children are given in school. You wouldn't want to sail with Christopher Columbus. Actually, I didn't need uh, Fiona McDonald to tell me that. I'm sure it would have been quite miserable aboard a 60-foot second-rate vessel, but we're going to come to that. So, very good. We actually know a great deal about Christopher Columbus, um, maybe as much as any other figure of the 15th century, with, for sure, the exception of Joan of Arc, right? Because we know all about her from all the testimony that was given under oath and corroborated by scores and scores of witnesses at her trial or her rehabilitation. But nonetheless, we know a lot about Christopher Columbus. There are a lot of primary sources, diaries, legal documents, contemporary accounts, notes that Columbus wrote in the margins of his books. We'll come to this a little bit, but when Columbus ends up in Lisbon, he really is at a center of learning in uh, Europe, and he becomes something of an autodidact, and he collects a lot of books. He collects an impressive library. And he writes extensive notes in the margins of books. I do this too. Some people think you shouldn't write in the margins of books. I do. It's okay to do it. An end-of-life apologia that's really mystical. And a, a biography written by his son, Fernando Colon. And there's some contemporary accounts as well. Ship's logs, some of which are quite accurate, some of which he deliberately uh, was misleading with. Uh, but nonetheless, um, there's a lot. And yet, almost everything in the Columbus story is uh, contested. And there's two kinds of contests here. One is the facts, and then the other is what they mean. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, what they mean. Oh, here's a fun one, though, on the facts. Almost everybody, well, maybe not so much now as we're tearing down statues. I think the count is something like 33 in the United States now. But uh, there, there was a time when... Many peoples wanted to claim Christopher Columbus. And so the English claimed him, the Irish, the Spanish, the Portuguese. Well, he certainly was funded by the Spanish. And a lot of his writing is in Portuguese. Why? Because, well, he's from Genoa. And that Genovese dialect was really a spoken dialect at the time, not so much something that you would do, do a lot of writing in. But he flowers intellectually during his time in Portugal and a lot of his writing is in Portuguese and in Spanish. Uh, Poles, Polish have tried to claim him. Uh, he did have red hair, so there was probably something Nordic or Celtic or maybe Norman in there. The Normans, we know, 
came down into Italy in the 11th century, all the way down to Sicily. Who knows exactly? But we know, we, we know with near moral certitude, as much as we can on this side of the veil, that he was from where? He was from, he was from Genoa. Uh, and he loved his city, as we will see. There's even a YouTube video claiming that uh, he was a Sephardic Jew. But no, he was from Genoa. He was a Genovese. The more significant con, uh, controversies concerning Columbus are what historians call the Columbian event. And what do I mean by this? The permanent uniting of two worlds completely isolated from each other in October of 1492. Completely unknown to each other, completely isolated from each other, permanently united in October 1492. This is what historians call the Columbian event. So was this a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Was Columbus a good man? Was he an evil man? What were his true motives? What is the meaning of this event? And we'll try to look at some of these questions uh, as we go through these remarks, but I'm going to give away the ending, all right? The discovery of the new world in October of 1492 is the most significant event in history after the incarnation. I'm going to read that again. The discovery of the new world in October of 1492 is the most significant event in history after the incarnation. That's a bold claim, hmm? right? Well, it's not original with me. People on both sides of the Columbus quarrel, if you will, will say as much. First major historian of the Spanish conquest of Latin America was a Dominican priest named Francisco Lopez uh, de Gomera. And he wrote in his General History of the Indies, which came out mm, within half a century of Columbus, uh, 1552. These are his words. And Bob Royal quotes this in one of the chapters of his book. The greatest event since the creation of the world, excluding the incarnation and death of him who created it, was the discovery of the Indies. Now, some of you may know this leftist historian, Kirkpatrick Sale. Um, he's actually written some excellent books on human scale. I think one of them is, in fact, called Human Scale, How Large a City Should Be. And he's somewhat uh, has a healthy reaction against technology. I admire him for some of this work. He's actually something of a friend. We've had dinner a couple of times. I don't know if he would remember, but nonetheless, in 1990, in preparation for the 500th anniversary of 1492, he wrote this book uh, called The Conquest of Paradise. A movie was made subsequent to it. And the book can only be described as vitriolic. It's the gold standard, if you will, for the anti-Columbian narrative. And I'm going to summarize here uh, cultural imperialism, disease, genocide, slavery imposed by white European males on a peaceful bucolic people. But Kirkpatrick Sale, who's not a, a fan of Christopher Columbus, writes, Christopher Columbus is the most important figure in human history. So my point here is that on both sides of the Columbus arguments, we have an agreement that this is a significant event. It's not the significance of the event that's debated. It's the meaning. It's the meaning. Now, for Christians, 
For Christians, Father Lopez de Gomera opens up a door of understanding for us. How? Because he refers to the incarnation as an event in human history, and this deserves a little reflection. He refers to the incarnation as an event in human history, and this deserves a little reflection. I'm just going to assert this. For the Christian, the only way that we can fully understand history is in the context of the incarnation. What do I mean? I mean that all history before the incarnation tends toward it or points toward it. And all history since the incarnation comes out of it. So if you've endured one of my ICC lectures in the past, you've probably heard me say this, but I'll go through it again real quickly here. Let me try to illustrate with some examples what I'm talking about. If we think about Alexander the Great, right, in the fourth century BC, conquering the East, what do we call that moment? We call it Hellenization, right? The, The bringing of Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek language to the East. That was the effect, that was the meaning of what Alexander the Great did, okay? And had he not done that in God's providential plan, then John, the evangelist, would not have had the way of thinking to develop his idea, which is a Greek idea, logos, to describe the second person of the Blessed Trinity, and nobody would have been able to read his gospel. So we see how to make the way for John's gospel. We have, as they say in the East, precursor of Christ, right? And Alexander the Great. Quick other example, the Punic Wars. Not an original idea with me. Stolen completely from G.K. Chesterton in his uh, book, Everlasting Man, right? But the Punic Wars are the contest between this young republic on the Tiber and this seagoing empire called called Carthage, where they really did throw babies into the furnace on a regular basis. And who was going to have control of the Mediterranean world? The world in which the incarnation was going to take place. Okay? So every Christmas Eve at midnight mass, when the Roman martyrology is read, right? In the such and such reign of the emperor, uh, so following such and such of, of the Olympiad, locating this moment in human history when all the world was at peace, right? And why that peace? Because of these Punic Wars. And then, since the incarnation, this Roman Empire being the, the world by which. Christianity would spread and the church would spread. This world informed by Roman law and Greek thought and then baptized, if you will, or Christianized in the Middle Ages. And the effect was what we call Christendom. And it is this, my friends, Christendom that is brought to the new world in 1492. That's the significance of the event. Christendom brought to the new world in 1492. So I've given away the end of the talk. We can go straight to questions and answers. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. Alas, 
people who should know better don't seem to know. And God bless Father Hezekiah for making this point just before we started. It's time for Christians to stand up. You would have heard a couple, almost two years ago, 20 January, two years ago, the distinguished president of a distinguished Catholic institution of higher learning announced that he would be shrouding a series of murals that had graced the halls of the university's main building for 135 years. The university, of course, is Notre Dame, highest ranked Catholic institution in the United States, if U.S. News and World Report is to be believed. It's always sort of puzzled me how we we turn to the same magazine that rates like hospitals and insurance plans to tell us, you know, where to send our kids to go to school. But nonetheless, um, Father Jenkins in his, uh, uh, well, these murals, there he is with our former distinguished president, right? The murals depict scenes from the discovery of the new world. Oh, by the way, you should know that words like, I'm sure you do, discovery and new worlds. These are expressions that I heard when I was in grade school. Now we say encounter, right? Of two worlds, more correct. But in any case, the artist of these murals was a man named Luigi Gregori. He wasn't even American. Uh, he, he was uh, uh, Bolognese. He was from Bologna. He did all the interior decorations or most of the interior decorations in the beautiful uh, church there at, uh, at Notre Dame. But in any case, Father Jenkins, in explaining why he was covering up these images, these paintings, said, wrote a letter to the student body, for the native peoples of this new land, right? Columbus's arrival was nothing short of a catastrophe. A catastrophe. Whatever else Columbus's arrival brought, whatever else, we'll come to that. For these people, it led to exploitation, expropriation of land, repression of vibrant cultures, enslavement, and new diseases causing epidemics that killed millions. The mural's depiction of Columbus as a beneficent explorer in front of the native peoples hides from you the, from view the darker side of the story. Now, let's contrast Father Jenkins with another Catholic priest, a chap I'm very fond of named Leo XIII. You ought to be canonized. Um, Rerum Navarum, if you haven't read it, shame on you. The, the lead off to the great social justice encyclicals of the modern age. Uh, but he wrote on the occasion of the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's discovery. Yes, I use the word discovery. Uh, quarto abeunte seculo, right? On the Columbus quadricentennial. Here's the quote. For the exploit in itself is the highest and grandest which any age has ever seen accomplished by man compared to Father Jenkins' catastrophe. And he who achieved it for the greatness of his mind and heart can be compared to but a few in the history of humanity. By his toil, another world emerged from the unsearched bosom of the ocean. Hundreds of thousands of mortals have, from a state of blindness, been raised to the common level of the human race, reclaimed from savagery to gentleness and humanity. And greatest of all, by the acquisition of those blessings of which Jesus Christ is the author, they have been recalled from destruction to 
eternal life. This is very different from what Father Jenkins wrote, right? Father Jenkins, well, so who's right? Well, we'll see if we can figure it out tonight. Father Jenkins isn't the only one echoing this Kirkpatrick sale native, and it's picking up steam now as these statues are being taken down or torn down. I think 33 is the latest count. Chula Vista, those of you who know San Diego, Chula Vista is uh, 10 miles south here of San Diego on the way to the Tijuana border. They had an explorer's park or, or something like that and a lovely statue of Columbus there. And they took it down. I wrote to the mayor of Chula Vista. I said, I can't remember her name. I said, Catholic Answers will, will happily take that statue off of your hands and we'd be happy to, to set it up here on the campus of Catholic Answers. I, oddly enough, I have not heard from her. Um, in any case, uh, some of you will remember the Native American activist, Russell Means. Bob Royal points Russell Means out in his book. Means was the vice presidential candidate for Larry Flint, right? The pornographer who ran for president and uh, was invited to speak on the campus of Georgetown University, another Catholic institution. In any case, this is Russell Means on Christopher Columbus. Columbus makes Hitler look like a juvenile delinquent. Asking Native Americans to celebrate on October 12th is like asking Jews to appreciate a balanced view of the Holocaust on Hitler Day. Another example from just north of me, uh, well, you know, 10 hours north up in Berkeley, uh, when Indigenous Peoples Day was created in uh, the city at Berkeley, California sponsored uh, where Indigenous Peoples Day came from, Berkeley, they sponsored an opera in 1992 called Get Lost Again, Columbus. I guess the irony is completely lost here. There would be no opera on these shores had it not been for Christopher Columbus. A more recent vintage, um, this young lady, I only recently learned about her, uh, Han Hannah, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones. Um, she runs something that I only recently found out about called the 1619 Project, um, which apparently President Trump said, thanks be to God, we're not going to have in schools. Uh, she wrote, um, Christopher Columbus and his ilk were no different than Hitler. By the way, please, it's different from different from, taller than, shorter than, older than, different from. Anyway, Christopher Columbus and his ilk, no different than Hitler. Question, where did Miss Hannah Jones study history as an undergraduate? Notre Dame. And now we have Indigenous Peoples Day, which, you know, honestly, if we were gonna have an Indigenous Peoples Day, why don't we pick a day on their calendar that celebrates a great moment in their history, not the day that the evil European man, Christian man came and destroyed their civilization, right? But even in Columbus, Ohio, they no longer celebrate Columbus Day. It's Indigenous Peoples Day. Now, fine, we can expect silliness from the fringe cranks, but when the president of a Catholic university joins this chorus, it isn't helpful in trying to get to an understanding of the man and the significance of his story. So let's have a go at that. So here's how we're gonna divide up the remaining three hours. The man and his age, the enterprise of the Indies, the four voyages and the legacy. Okay, the man and his age. What do we know about Christopher Columbus? And by the way here, when I say the man and his age, I, I, I don't mean his age, <laughs> he was 54 when he died, so my age. Um, 
but the time in, in, in which he grew up. And you've heard me say this before. It is important for us to get our imaginations around and think like, insofar as we can, the people of a certain time, if we're going to understand the time in which it took place, right? So Christopher Columbus was born in 15, 1451, sometime between August and October in the maritime city of Genoa. It's wrong to call Genoa a city, right? We think of these little beautiful cities in Italy, Venice, Florence, Pisa, Rome. Recall, my friends, you've heard me say this before, Italy was forcibly unified about the same time that the United States was forcibly unified in the 19th century, okay, in the Risorgimento. There's a museum celebrating the Risorgimento there on the Capitoline Hill. It's not something, by the way, that should be celebrated. It was war by Masons against the Papal States, right? But prior to the Risorgimento, the independent city-states of, of Italy were, in fact, that. They were independent republics, and some of them quite powerful, and the seaborne, seaborne ones especially, and it ebbed and flowed at one time earlier. Pisa was quite powerful. Venice, of course, comes of age in the, in the 16th century. Um, but the maritime city of Genoa was quite a powerful city. It was called the Republic of Genoa. And if you were there and you lived there, you would have called it Genoa la Superba, Genoa the Superb. And with good reason. She was a powerful republic and her great wealth came from seaborne commerce. And this little map here gives you an idea. The darker reds are actually holdings and then the lighter reds uh, areas where there was extensive training and uh, Genovese uh, communities, right? Seaborne commerce, textiles, spices, especially, and slaves. Uh, and then the same thing that comes wherever you see seaborne commerce, whatever comes with that is what? Banking, banking. So powerful country. And this gives you a sense of her reach. In fact, here's a, uh, this is, this is, this fort, uh, that's all the way in the Crimea. Okay, right. That's an example of it, of the reach of Genoa about the time of Columbus's when he was born. So this world, as I say, was a collection of independent city states, independent republics, and and to my mind, probably the greatest flowering of cultural history. And in relatively small towns, I mean, you think about Florence in the 14th, 15th centuries, 15th, 16th centuries, um, or Siena, uh, maybe 30, 40,000 people. And then look at the magnificent art and the beautiful buildings that these places uh, produced, right? So I know there's that book called The Irish Save Civilization and all that, right? Go Irish, I'm part Irish, it's okay. But here we are. I mean, I think the greatest cultural flowering probably in the Italian peninsula in this medieval into the Renaissance period. So Columbus is born in Genoa in 1451, and his father, Domenico, is a weaver. His house may be near a gate or what was a gate in Genoa. Um, he was from Genoa. He wrote, from it I came, in it I was born, that noble and powerful city by the sea. But what significant event happened when Columbus was two years old? And this is important to the story that we're going to tell right? Constantinople 
falls to Mehmed the Conqueror, right? This is the real fall of Rome. This is the end of Rome, because as you know, Rome persists in the East uh, well a thousand years after uh, 476, where we say it fell in the West, okay? So this is the fall of Rome. But for the purpose of our story, this means that the Ottoman Turks are in ascendance and that the West is divided from the Orient by what? The Ottoman Empire and the thing that informs the Ottoman Empire, Islam, right? So in between all those trade routes, Silk Road, trade routes going back to the age of Marco Polo, right now is the Ottoman Turks, right? And they are at odds with Christian Europe, for sure, over religion, but also competitors with Christian Europe over trade, right? Over the economy. This is important. Trade with the Far East now must go through or is interrupted by Islam. Silk, spices. And why spice is so highly valued in this time, of course, well, because there's no refrigeration and people eat, you know, bad meat. Vast, vast fortunes, you know, Bill Gates size fortunes, George Soros size fortunes, uh, you could make in speculating in, in spices, okay? One thing more about this age. Who's the great sea power? Not Genoa, it's Portugal. It's Portugal. And part of the reason Portugal is the sea power that she is, is because being on the Atlantic coast, she is largely freed from the Mediterranean conflicts that Spain and Italy are dealing with, with Islam, with the Ottomans, right? And another important part of the Portuguese story or person, Prince Henry, the navigator. That's not what people called him at the time. He was Infante de Enrique, right? But a, a, a po- possibly a, a seagoing genius. He, 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 he is the designer of the, of the, the, the Carrick or the Caraval, which is essentially the kind of ship that Columbus would take on his first voyage. So Prince Henry, the navigator, uh, is trying to solve what problem? He's trying to solve the, the get to the east by sea problem. And how's he trying to solve it? By getting around the Cape of Good Hope. And a lot of Columbus's contemporaries uh, gave a whack at this. And a lot of them didn't come back. Who's the first guy who, who comes, gets around and comes back? It's Vasco da Gama. I have 1495 written here, but I think it's a little bit later. Uh, look it up, 97, 98, something like that. Anyway, but anyway, after Columbus makes his voyage, after Columbus makes his voyage, but Portugal is the great sea power. Okay, that's the age. Now, some quick biographical notes. Born in 1451, um, red hair, 
broad shoulders, taller than, you, than, than the average man. His father, Domenico, is a wool weaver. His father, Domenico, the biographers like to describe him. Um, one says, you know, he's the kind of father who, if it was a beautiful day, and of course it was Genoa, so there are plenty of them, uh, he's going to put the gone fishing sign up and take his kids fishing. Uh, or another one describes him as the wine merchant who's his own best customer, right? My kind of guy. So Domenico uh, and his wife uh, give birth to five children. Columbus has four siblings, uh, one girl and uh, uh, four boys. Uh, His brothers will join him on his voyages and they join him in the governance of the Indies. One, Giacomo, will eventually become a priest. And Santa Domingo, which is the capital of the Dominican Republic, right? One half of Hispaniola, the other half is called Haiti. So Santa Domingo is named for Chris's dad. Columbus does not take up weaving. I guess we knew that part of the story. He takes to the sea. Some accounts say as early as 10. It's believable. Kids grew up a lot earlier, but we're pretty sure by 14, he's sailing regularly on Genovese ships to colonies in the Eastern Mediterranean. There's a specific account of a trip to Chios. In 1476, when Columbus is 25 years old, he is sailing under a Genovese flag with a shipment to Northern Europe. And he's part of an armada, uh, a multinational armada. Why? Because Europe is in a stage of unrest and there's piracy and even some of the piracy is state-sponsored. I guess that's a way to put it. So there's Portuguese in there as well. And they are taking a shipment to Northern Europe. They clear the Straits of Gibraltar and they are set upon by French warships. So this is French piracy. Uh, Columbus's ship, the Becala, founders, and Columbus is thrown overboard. And he grabs a sweep, which is a, you know, a, a very large oar, a giant oar. And he, with the aid of this oar, swims six miles to shore. Now, remember, he passed the Straits of Gibraltar. So what shore is he going to land on? He's going to end up in Portugal. And he makes his way to Lisbon, where his brother Bartholomew, Bartolomeo, is living in a big Genovese community. You all saw the map. Uh, There's Genovese communities everywhere, right? There's a big Genovese community in Lisbon. And what's Bartolomeo doing there? He's making maps. Now, Lisbon is the center, as we were talking about, of exploration and discovery, African trade, beads, ivory, gold dust, pepper, slaves, yes. And the Venetians and the Genovese are busy battling the Turks, but as I mentioned, Portugal is busy on the Atlantic, not really distracted by the wars in the Mediterranean. This is where we learn that Columbus is a man of considerable intellect when he's living in Portugal. And he begins his long life, maybe even before this, of course, but, but now we know his, his, his skill as an autodidact. He's, a, he's self-taught. And he learns Portuguese and Spanish. And Portuguese, by the way, that's a, that, that's a tough language 
right? Uh, and he learns, most importantly, Latin. And if you don't know Latin, you don't know where you're from, right? As Pope Benedict pointed out. Uh, and Latin for him unlocks the learning of the past. And he's able to start reading. And as I mentioned a little while ago, books are plentiful in Lisbon. And he starts buying them and building a library. So he's building his mind and he's also gaining considerable sailing experience under the Portuguese flag. He goes down the African coast to the Azores. He even goes as far up as Ireland and Iceland. Columbus, a lot of people don't know this, sailed up into the Arctic Circle, right? He learns, this is where you, we, we begin to see the superhuman navigational skill of Christopher Columbus. He begins to pay very close attention to the prevailing winds at various latitudes, right? By the time he is 32, he's a master mariner in the Portuguese merchant service. And when he got the idea for this great enterprise, and what was this great enterprise? Sail west to find the east. We don't know for sure. Who knows? I mean, these things bubble up over time in the hearts of men. But at some point, Columbus goes from Christopher Columbus Mariner to Christopher Columbus Fundraiser. And he's very good at it. This is why I have great respect for him. He gets nowhere, however, at first with the Portuguese crown. And why not? Well, if there's really something there, the great naval uh, nation, the great naval people, they're not going to give this to a Genovese, right? So uh, the king, King John, I think his name is at the time, he rounds up his own uh, caravels or uh, carracks and sends them out, seeing if this is possible. They go as far as they can and they come back. They don't make it. And he thinks, I'm not going to invest any, in money, any money in this. But he does eventually get traction with the Queen of Spain. And how does he do this? Because uh, he, he marries when he is in Portugal. He marries up. He marries into the nobility. And the marriage surely came about because of his great devotion to the Catholic faith. So he marries into a, no, a family of noble blood, but, um, but one that's not especially well-to-do. And so they're happy to have a man who is a devout Christian uh, welcoming him into the family. And so now he's able to move in, the, in, in circles in the nobility of Christendom. This is a very short version, my friends, of how he finally makes his way to an audience with the great monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella. But it is Columbus's piety, and not just his piety that, that impresses Isabella, but not just his piety, my friends, it's more than that. It is a thoroughgoing self-confidence that he is part of a providential plan, that he is a central player in a providential plan. He's thoroughly convinced of this. And Isabella is convinced of this too. And 
as I'm arguing, she's right. She turns out to be right. And if you read any of Columbus's writing, I mean, it's all laced with this kind of mysticism and piety and prophecy and his role in all of it. And to top it off, my friends, we are coming up on what? The, the, the end of the century, and not just the end of the century, but the year 1500, so the end of a 500-year period. And so very much in the mind of people right now is a kind of eschatology, is the second coming imminent. So Columbus is able to sell his expedition to Isabella by saying that a central element of this, your highness, is that Spain will be so wealthy that she will be able to go finance a new crusade and take back the Holy Land from Islamic tyranny at this moment as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He was, he was thoroughly convinced of this, and it's obvious in all of his writings. And you look at the, his apology at the end of his life, it's all very much has this eschatological tone. His devotion is much attested to. He said the divine office every day. Some accounts say he was a Franciscan tertiary. Constantly he was saying, saying Jesus and Mary be with us on the way. He would write that at the top of all of his correspondence. Every day on the Santa Maria, they sang the Salve. Every night before, as the evening watch is coming on there, Columbus would stand towering over the crew of Santa Maria and he would read aloud the last gospel. Attendees of the Latin Mass know exactly what I'm talking about. It's those first 14 verses of the Gospel of John that remind us of the point that I'm trying to make tonight, the incarnation, the incarnation. All right, the enterprise of the Indies. So real real quickly, just to summarize, summarize what I'm saying, these are the motives, right? He sees himself as a central figure in this providential plan. Uh, there is the opportunity to finance a crusade and all kind of caught up in this eschatological sense. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the science. There's, there's a fellow who's got an excellent piece on, and I'll, I'll forward it. It's, it's an excellent lecture. It's on YouTube. I, I don't think he's a believer or anything like that, but he's, he is able to, and I'll give the link to ICC, he's able to boil down the science for the non-specialist. I know I was able to understand it here, but the kind of the state of the geometry and the geography at the time, right? It isn't what it is today. Um, but let's go over this a little bit because Columbus turns out to be right about some things that other people said he was wrong about. He turns out to be very wrong about some things that people said he was wrong about. Did I phrase that correctly? Well, anyway, you know what I meant. Um, uh, but I, but I want to go over this. He didn't prove that the earth was round. Uh, Aristosthenes in 200 BC uh, comes within a percent of latitude, right? Or 1% of the earth's circumference. Um, but there was a debate at the time about just how big was, how long was a degree of latitude? We know the answer to that question right now. It's 60 nautical miles. So I think I put it on the slide there. So that's about 69, you know, ordinary miles, right? So 60 nautical miles. Columbus was way off. 
And actually, it's a good thing it, he was because he might not have attempted the voyage. He thought a degree of latitude was about 45 miles. There was also a dip, uh, dip, nautical miles. There was also a debate about just how long a mile was. And Columbus probably underestimated that a little bit. But just to give you a sense, Columbus was about 25, a full 25% off in his guess of the circumference of the earth. So many, many years after Aristosthenes, uh, Columbus is way off. He puts it around 16,300 nautical miles. The fact is it's about 21,600, okay? Or whatever I've got on the slide is correct. Um, he, he's also mistaken about some distances. He figures India, which is where he's trying to go, is about 3,000 miles from the Canaries. It's really about 7,000. He also underestimates considerably just how far away Japan is from, uh, from Europe. So a lot of people, you know, you've heard this story that, the, that Catholic um, monks or cardinals or whatever were telling Christopher Columbus, don't attempt this. You're going to fall off the edge of the earth. Well, first of all, nobody thought the world was flat. But one of the things that we're telling him is don't attempt this voyage because the earth is a lot bigger than you think it is. Now, what nobody knew is there was a continent in between. Just here's a couple of quick maps, uh, I think. So Columbus was working off of Ptolemy. Uh, he was working off of Marco Polo. He was working off of scripture. Um, and there's one more famous globe. Yeah, Benheim's uh, globe there. Um, and of course, nobody knew there was a whole continent there. But also, there was a debate about the globe generally. That is, how much land there is and how much water. What's the ratio of earth to water? And in the Aristotelian model, you had a, a, a sphere, right? And then a little part of it poking out, like a little bulb on a balloon or something. Um, and that would be earth. And then the rest of it was water. So they thought it was, Aristotle said it was about uh, 10 to 1, water to earth. We know now about 70% of the earth is water. Columbus was crazy way off. He said that it was 6 to 1 land to water, right? And by the way, he uses an obscure passage in the book of Ezra and other biblical quotes. He mined the scriptures for all kinds of evidence for his voyage. I'm telling you, he was, he was, he was convinced of the um, prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy that his voyage was. So he mined uh, all scripture for evidence. So he thought the earth was six to one land to water, okay? There was also a debate about you know, how much of the earth was inhabited? Could the earth be inhabited below the equator? As you got closer to the equator, the earth would be less productive. Um, Columbus said no, on the con and, he, and he turned out to be right. The earth is mega productive around the equator. And we do now know that it is inhabited, as Columbus argued, below the equator. So some things he was way wrong on and some things he was the he was the lone voice saying that these things are true and they turned out to be true he he ended up showing that land and water on the globe were in fact uh, at, at the same level it, uh, the same concentric level 
Okay. His opponent said, no, the continents don't reach that far down in the Southern hemisphere. So, and like I say, he was quite right about the biodiversity and the hyperproductivity of the area around the equator. So that's the kind of the state of the science. Let's keep going to the voyages. So these we're going to race through. Again, if you want the narrative, read Ernley Bradford. And I know we're coming up against uh, almost the end of my first hour here. But um, just very quickly, uh, 33, first voyage, 33 days at sea, lands at what is now called San Salvador. We have good reason to believe. Discovers Hispaniola, Cuba. He finds the Thanos Indians who are quite peaceful. He finds the Caribs who are not. This is, this, this is the etymology of the word cannibal, by the way. Um, he thought he'd reached Asia. In fact, he probably went to his uh, deathbed thinking maybe he had doubts near the end of his life, but we don't know for sure. But he certainly at this moment thought that he had reached Asia. And when I say Asia or India, I, we, think of, we think of India now as you know, the country of India. India, of course, to someone at this time and certainly uh, to the ancients would have been all up into the Hindu Kush, right? So he thought he'd reached Asia and he went back. And of course, he's quite fetid because everything he said turns out to be true, right? So, or so people thought, right? So, but the queen's going to throw some money into him. Uh, his next voyage, he's got 17 ships. He colonizes Hispaniola. He explores Jamaica. He explores the coast of Cuba. He does set up a tribute system for gold. This is brutally enforced at times, not necessarily by Columbus. There is slavery. Yes, there is. By the way, Columbus was opposed to slavery, but my friends, you please understand, slavery has not uh, fallen out of fashion yet. The Catholic Church has been explicit about it. The um, crown has been explicit about it. Columbus has been ex explicit about it, but he's also managing a large number of men in a brand new world. So yes, there is slavery and some of the treatment of the natives, to be sure, is not what we would call Christian. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he begins to colonize the new world. On his third voyage, what happens? It's significant. Why? Because he does, in fact, discover a new continent, or he believes he's on, he knows this is for sure. He knows he's on a continent. He lands on Venezuela, right? And how does he know he's on a continent? Because he just has this natural sense. This place, I'm not kidding you, does not smell like an island. The size of the rivers, this can't possibly be an island. The way the water flows, the weather patterns, the species of plants that I'm seeing, too diverse. This can't simply be an island. So he's not a naturally trained, or he's not a school trained naturalist, but he has a natural sense for it in the way that he does for navigation. It is on his third voyage that he runs afoul of other officials in the Indies who accuse him of malfeasance, poor governance. He, is, uh, he runs afoul of Christopher Bartolomeo Diego. Uh, he's sent back to Spain to stand trial. He's spent, sent back to Spain in, in chains. Uh, this does not last the, uh, 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 the, the charge. Um, 
but uh, his wealth is restored to him and his titles. But the queen, the, the, the crown says, Columbus, thank you for your work and exploration and in discovery here, but we're not going to keep you in governance. Columbus would later say in his defense, look, my friends, you know, everyone says I was a poor governor. Maybe he was a poor governor. I don't know. But Columbus made the point. He said, I was, it's not as if I went to Sicily, you know, where it where was already occupied by people who were reading and writing Latin and reading the scriptures and who had some familiarity with Aristotle. Okay. I went to a completely new world, right? Where people had never heard of the gospel, never heard of monogamy, right? And, uh, and never benefited from the things that inform the kind of government that we all enjoy. So I think if we're going to judge Columbus as a governor, we have to understand what he was up against. And by the way, realize that well beyond the period of Cortez, we had we have bad governance in Mexico. And what really finally brings things under control or starts to bring things under control, a miraculous appearance of Our Lady, right, at Our Lady of Guadalupe, but another lecture. So there is no question that he's discovered uh, a, a new continent. Uh, he goes back and explores it some more in his fourth voyage, right? And this really, he is very much fulfilling a prophecy, right? He's sent back on his fourth voyage. By the way, on the fourth voyage, he makes it across in 16 days. So half the time it took him for the first voyage. Now, admittedly, he had better ships second time around. Uh, the Nina Pin and Santa Maria were really crummy, second-rate ships, right? So now he's got better ships for sure. But nonetheless, to cut half the time off shows that he's absolutely mastered those southern trade winds. He finds a passage to the Indian Ocean. He explores the coast of Central America. He's marooned for a year uh, on Jamaica. It's an amazing story. Read the Bradford book or the Morrison book. He returns. And within a year of his return, he dies. And by the way, he leaves a last will in which he provides with his vast fortune by, he provides for uh, a foundation for the Crusades, but also for what? For missionary activity in the new world. It's, it's, it's never far from, it's always at the center of Columbus's thought and his motives that he's bringing the cross that he's bringing the incarnation, that the Christ bearer is bringing Jesus to the new world. So, so last part here, the legacy, right? He discovered land where nobody said there was. Um, we do know that he exaggerated the width of the continents and gravely underestimated the length of the oceans and the, and the circumference of the earth. He masters by sailing south, he masters those trade winds. By his third voyage, he has discovered a new continent. Right? His plan to circumnavigate on the fourth voyage does not come to pass, but he is convinced as at the end of his life that he certainly has reached India. Maybe he's thinking as he's dying, he's found a whole new continent. But what does this mean? Well, first of all, as I said at the beginning of my remarks, the first sustained exchange between two peoples, completely unknown to each other. Yeah, I know the, 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 the whatchamacallit, runestone or whatever it is in Minnesota, right? The Vikings came here. For, 
There's not a shred of evidence of exchange between whoever the Vikings ran into in uh, Minnesota and uh, an Iceland or Greenland or wherever it is they're said to have come from, right? This is the first ex sustained exchange between two peoples completely unknown to each other. And by the way, people who had no knowledge of scripture or the ancients. By the way, it's the first biologic exchange. And we'll come to that in a minute. And as I say, the great, greatest event in history outside the incarnation, and that's the light in which we understand it. So here, the Columbian exchange. What are the central parts of this, right? This has been a term that's been in use by historians since the, I don't know, nearly half a century. Widespread transfer between Europe and the Americas. So if you like any of these things, you should be celebrating tomorrow. Corn, maize, right? Tomatoes, potatoes. By the way, potatoes actually brought back to Europe uh, assists in the expansion of the population of Europe. Vanilla, chocolate, rubber, tobacco, mm, quinine. So if you like gin and tonics, you like Christopher Columbus. Actually, more seriously, gin and tonic, what? I mean, uh, not gin and tonic, quinine is good against uh, COVID-19. No, malaria, right? Before Columbus, none of these plants existed in the Americas, all citrus, right? We tend to think of Florida, Texas, Latin America as citrus. No, these things all came from Africa and Asia. Apples, bananas, mangoes, onions, garlic too. So if you like salsa, you like Christopher Columbus. Because onions and tomatoes and garlic never would have come together if it hadn't been for Christopher Columbus. Wheat, right? And of course, animal husbandry, domesticated animals. And yes, there is a disease exchange too. Uh, Europeans bring measles and smallpox. And there are estimates of millions of deaths. It's probably so. There were not demographers at the time. So they're not accurate counts of the civilization, but I think anthropologists and archaeologists make good guesses at this, and it has to be admitted, but we can distinguish this from genocide, and I'll come to that. But by the way, it's probable, there are two theories about syphilis, but one of them is it was brought back in 1492 on the return of the first voyage, and probably made a fairly rapid spread throughout Europe, because the theory goes that Henry VIII so when that would have been, what, 1527? I don't remember when he died, but thereabouts. They so just say 1530. I'm not sure. Look it up. Uh, probably died of syphilis. Anyway, these have led to charges of genocide. But my friends, the problem here, as Stafford Pohl, a Jesuit historian, and by the way, a liberal, a leftist, um, I'm not sure if he's still alive. He used to teach up in Orange County. His histories of Our Lady of Guadalupe are, are, are quite good. But one of the points that he makes is, um, as elaborated in this century, the term applies to a calculated deliberate extermination of entirely an entire identifiable people for racial other reasons, like the genocide in the Vendée, for example, right? Or Armenia or the Jewish Holocaust, right? D despite the dreadful consequences of the European invasion of Latin America, there was no planned or calculated desire to destroy the people as such. There are other terms to describe what happened to the Western Hemisphere, but genocide is not one of them. 
It is a good propaganda term in an age when slogans and shouting have replaced reflection and learning. But to use it in the context, in this context, in the context of Christopher Columbus, cheapens both the word itself and the experience of, the appalling experience of Jews and Armenians to mention but a two of the major victims of genocide. So we can't say genocide, right? And yes, there was slavery. But as I pointed out, and Steve Weidenkopf, who lectures frequently for the Institute, makes this point in his book that he wrote for Catholic Answers, uh, Real Catholic History, or The Real Story of Catholic History. Popes were explicit from 1435 to 1890 in their condemnation of the slave trade. Eugenius VI, Sicududum, demanded that Christians free all enslaved nations on the Canary Island or incur excommunication. 57 years before Columbus's voyage, the Roman pontiffs unequivocally prohibited the enslavement of native peoples. 1537, Paul III issued his bull, Sublimus Dei, that taught that native peoples are not to be reduced to slavery. 1591, Gregory XIV promulgated cum sicuti, which was addressed to the Bishop of Manila in the Philippines and reiterated this condemnation and on and on. All right, real quick, the cultural exchange. What do we bring to the new world? What does, what does Columbus bring? What do the Europeans bring? The wheel, the arch. There's all this talk about Tenochtitlan and what a magnificent city it was. There was no wheel there. There was no arch, there was no column, there was no dome, there was no animal husbandry, there was no domestication of animals, maybe dogs for guard service, right? There was no crop rotation, there was no irrigation, there was very little clothing, uh, there was no monogamy. But my personal favorite, my friend, and this is what the Columbus story is about, is baptism, right? This is what was brought to the new world, the promise of eternal salvation, right? And Columbus, you know, all of us can embark on something and then hope that sometime down the road, some future generations will see the meaning of it and how it fits into God's providential plan. It is a fact that Columbus had a sense of how he fitted into this providential plan. And he understood, as we can only understand in the light of the incarnation, what his role was. Thanks very much. Dr. Pabino, go ahead and, and ask your question to uh, Christopher Chet. This is my question. You know how this is an apologetics kind of question. Oh. And I, I guess that's what we're all in the business of doing these days because the attacks are unrelenting. Now, when... You know, when secular people reproach the Catholic Church for the Crusades and how evil we were and all these things, and then you look at it and you see that, number one, there's a lot of myths, but number two also, an enlightening comparison is to compare the Crusades, a few battles, tiny area, you compare that with how Islam spread, okay? And then you pan out and you see the map of the Mediterranean basin from Pamplona to Afghanistan, and there are bloody battles everywhere for Islam, suddenly the Crusades seem like small potatoes. Now, my question is this. Is there anything like an analog to Christopher Columbus in the non-Christian world 
that would allow us to compare really the difference between a Christian discovery, discovery of a new civilization as opposed to a non-Christian discovery of a new civilization? Wow, that is a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I mean, we think about uh, migrations of peoples. Right. right? Um, and and in, in, in that sense, it's, this is, this is really not, this is really actually more avoiding your question. But <laughs> when, when we, um, for, for, for example, if we're going to try to make a defense by showing the absurdity of, of, of the other position, and I, I think it'll be clear what I'm trying to say here, um, let's take that term indigenous people's day. Well, there were indigenous people in the Mexico City Basin, or what we now call the Mexico City Basin, before the Aztecs arrived there. Presumably, they came down, uh, some people say, uh, from the, what, was, what would now be the American High Southwest. There seems to be. So, so there, 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 there's, a, there's an overthrow of a people there. Um, the Turks uh, come into Anatolia when? Ninth uh, century? 10th century? Yes. Uh, d- d- down from the steppes, right? Um, they're not Muslims, they, they, but, but they take over, the, they, as they come down into Arabia, they take over, they become converts. In fact, they become better Muslims than the Muslims, like converts <laughs> do. Um, so, I mean, you know, who are the indigenous people of, of, uh, of, of, of Anatolia? Um, but, but, so yeah, in the sense, I think if we, and you could probably come up with better answers than I, but if we think about the migrations of peoples, we can think that there's almost sort of a, a, a so beginning of time of one set of peoples being overthrown by another, and often in a really uh, brutal way. Um, in fact, I would venture to say almost always. Um, but there isn't anything like two worlds completely unknown to each other. Right. We'd have to go, we, you know, we'd have to go to Mars now or something like that. In fact, it's interesting because some of the debates that I was referring to, can even this part of the globe be populated? Can the part of the globe be populated that's below the equator? Would be not unlike the uh, kinds of conversations that people have nowadays. If we went to Mars, would we expect to find people on that planet, right? Now, I think there's frankly theological problems with those sorts of conversations, but nonetheless, um, it, 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 that's the way to kind of get your imagination around uh, just how distant and remote and fantastic, you know, the conversation was. But, uh, but if you think of that analog, um, shoot me a note <laughs> so I can better answer this question next time some smart person asks. Yeah, uh, the only thing I can think of would be the, uh, the behavior of the, the Protestants in Australia. And that seems to have been an actual genocide, particularly in Tasmania. Or, or, or Protestants in the United States. Yes, and the difference between Mexico and the U.S., the difference between these blended mestizo cultures versus 
the, these racially charged exclusivist cultures that the Protestants set up in North America. Yeah, I know that ICC folks have heard me say this before. Mm. Manifest destiny was kind of a nice way of saying, keep pushing the brown people towards the Pacific Ocean. Right. But Cortez uh, puts in place a, a, a system of intermarriage and no one has, no people has explored the nature of intermarriage in the way that the Spanish have. And if you look up, you can find not just Mestizo, but all the different levels of mix of, of native and Spanish blood and the different names that they had for them and why it was to integrate them into society. This is why it's, it's particularly appalling, but also insane that the uh, president of Mexico yesterday uh, called on the, the, the Spanish government and the Holy Father Pope Francis to apologize for, uh, you know, the Mexican or the Spanish conquest of, of Mexico. To be sure, there was a conquest of people who frankly made the Carthaginians look like Bush League, you know, but then it was uh, baptized and intermarried. Yeah. Maybe that's what they really want us to apologize for, that we brought Christianity. Yes. It's always Christ. The issue is Christ every time. All right, Mr. Check, I have a question coming in from Amelia, and she's wondering this. When coworkers wish her a happy Indigenous Peoples Day tomorrow, what would you suggest is a good one or two liner response? I, smile and... Like, <laughs> um, uh, you, you can just smile and politely say, um, happy Christopher Columbus Day to you. And it just depends on the person you're speaking to and your stomach for a quarrel. Um, if, if you could even say, uh, if you'd like to know why I still call it Christopher Columbus Day, I'd be happy to explain that to you. Um, or you, or you could, you could even do like my friend Trent Horn does. He would say, well, you know, why do you call it indigenous people's day? I mean, the day October 12th is the day that landfall is made in the Christopher Columbus story. So like I said, at the beginning, if you really wanted an indigenous people's day, wouldn't you pick something in the now, how would you even do this? Because there's so many indigenous peoples. But wouldn't you pick something in their calendar, not in the day where their civilization gets turned over? But I mean, I, as I grow older, I really try very hard to avoid snark and and uh, and, and 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 sarcasm and just say, you know, it's there. What it it is Columbus Day. It's still called Columbus Day. Is, are, are are you uncomfortable with calling Columbus Day? But it really depends on who you're speaking with. Otherwise. You know, there are moments, my friends, where someone's unteachable, and, uh, and that's what you have to discern at that time. You know, Chris, as you were talking tonight, as you were, as you were um, explaining this, really a beautiful story, that very issue came up in my mind, Indigenous Peoples Day. In some ways, we can celebrate. It's a, it's a strange thing. I mean, this is their day. This is, you just said yourself. What are the great moments in their history? The greatest moment in their history is when Columbus landed and brought Christ to them. Yep. This is their great feast day. 
this is the moment in which salvation came to them. And so we certainly can say this is a beautiful day for the people of this of this land, for they have encountered Christ and their souls have been saved. Yeah, that's beautiful. See, Father Hezekiah, he's pastoral. Well done. That's an excellent answer. I got a question coming in here, um, uh, Chris, that uh, from Jerry Butler, who asked, how do you know that these people living in the new land that Christopher Columbus encountered did not have their own method of worshiping God? And I guess I'm just going to expand that for a second. Can you paint for us a picture of the life of the people that he encountered in, in regards to their religious um, you know, observances? Okay, so what we know about the people, particularly of, of, of the Caribbean, uh, we know in, as it is reported to us by Columbus and men like them who encountered them. Um, uh, I mentioned two peoples and I have to go back in mind, the, the Caribs and the others now I'm forgetting. One he described as extremely peaceful and affable people with pleasing voices and he enjoyed their company. And, and the other ones were uh, a, a fiercer um, tribe. But he was very fond of uh, the people that he came in, in contact with. Um, there isn't any question, by the way, that uh, the people of the Western Hemisphere, not just in the Caribbean, but on the mainland as well, uh, had some form of worship. Uh, that's written in the hearts of man. Now, the, by the creator. Now, wh whom they were worshiping is a separate question. And here, of course, um, Cortez is, is, is a little bit better uh, a source anyway that I, I'm better familiar with because as he makes his way from the Caribbean to the center of Mexico, uh, he, he starts to encounter people more how can we say culturally advanced than uh, when, when Cortez uh, arrives on the shores of Mexico and leaves the Caribbean, people are still basically living in mud huts. There's no stone masonry or anything like that. So not especially culturally advanced, but he does make his way eventually to Tenochtitlan, which is quite culturally advanced. And in fact, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, the, the Aztecs probably had better hygiene than the Spaniards. Um, they certainly bathed uh, more frequently. But what is also true is that their form of worship um, and, and as their own uh, uh, codices show, their calendars uh, included uh, the, 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 the ripping out of the heart of the victim with an obsidian knife at the top of a pyramid and then throwing that, holding that heart aloft and then throwing that body down to quiver in a pile of other bodies at the base of the pyramid and then dining on the flesh. So this was in fact, you know, their religion. Now I would call that demonic. Um, I would say those people were in the thrall of the devil. They were. Um, so uh, I, I am not saying that people didn't have some form of worship. I'm saying that the true form of worship is what was brought here. Great. Thank you so much for that answer. I think we have time for one more. Michael, I see you have your hand raised. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Yes. Uh, Chris, could you tell us more about your title, St. Christopher Columbus? 
Yes, I can. Father Hezekiah names all of my talks, and he does that so he can get a lot of people to sign up. No, I mean, the point here is, uh, actually, uh, it's funny you bring this up. There was, a, there was a movement in the 19th century, Paul Claudel was part of it, um, to get uh, Columbus canonized. And the, uh, I, I think probably what slowed that down, Columbus's first wife dies uh, before his first voyage, I think. And uh, he does take up for the rest of his life with one woman. Um, but it is what we would call a common law marriage or a mistress. Now, this would not have been uncommon in the 16th century uh, or in the 15th and the 16th century. Certainly people of a noble class who took up the comfort of the companionship of a, a woman even for life, um, but never gave her the benefit of sacramental marriage. Uh, we saw this and it was it was probably more uh, more than anything just something that, you know, you wouldn't have a marriage between the social classes. Um, Galileo had a mistress for most of his life, gave him several, and by all accounts was faithful to her, uh, but she was from a lower social class and probably wouldn't have ever married her. One of the daughters became a nun. So probably that is what's held up uh, the formal um, canonization and then maybe some of the other charges about uh, the, the, the treatment of the natives. Um, uh, but, uh, but there was, there was such a movement, but I think generally what I'm, what point we're trying to make, um, is this, and it's one that father Hezekiah made was Christopher Columbus a perfect man. No, he was a sinner. Was he part of a providential plan? He absolutely was. But the thing that sets him apart is he did know. I argue that it was revealed to him. Now, I'm not one of these people, like I've had locutions and when people say that to me, I'm very skeptical of that. And I tend to be extremely skeptical of that sort of thing. But it seems very much to me that it was revealed to him or written somehow in his heart or spoken to his heart that, uh, that he was to be this central player in this providential plan to bring the cross to the new world at a time, right, as Protestantism, right, is gonna begin to infect uh, the Christendom of the old world. And it, when we look at the story, we just see, as, we, as we're at being able to look at it in hindsight, we just see it's not an accident. It's not an accident that Christ is brought to the new world by the Christ bearer, by Christopher. It's not an accident that Christ is brought to the new world on a ship called the Santa Maria, right? Named for that vessel of devotion, right? Singular vessel of honor, right? As we say in the litany of Loretto. So all the pieces add up. It's so easy. And then, of course, the culmination of the story, which I think continues in, in the appearance in Tepeyac Hill in 1531. And I think that story continues. So it's easy. I, we, we have the benefit of hindsight. It's such an easy thing to see the hand of God on this. I, I, I expect we'll meet St. Christopher Columbus on the other side of the veil. You'll have some good stories. Thank you, Chris. As, uh, as St. Paul said, in the fullness of time, huh? right. God's providence. And uh, thank you very much for your time with us. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 540- 
635-735-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.